Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Friday, March 1st, and we're talking about two international tech stocks that put up big earnings results. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis. I've got Fool.com's Danny Venna on Skype. Danny, what's up? Hi, Dylan. It's another, uh, well, somewhat sunny day in San Diego. I know you guys have been dealing with snow, but for us, uh, it's going to be about 65 today and a little cloudy. Uh, yeah, you know, we were a little worried. We saw some snow in the forecast. Only wound up getting like half an inch, an inch or something like that. Uh, unfortunately, it'll be turning to rain later. So I'm a little jealous of the right. weather situation you got over there. You know, come on out and visit and we'll get some coffee. <laughs> I might have to take you up on that sometime soon. Uh, Danny, a lot of things coming up rosy for you. You've got good weather over there. Uh, and two stocks that you follow very closely, both of us own, uh, put up some pretty awesome earnings results over the past week and a half or so. That's true. And the market seemed to really like it. Both um, iQiyi, which is, has, is commonly called the Netflix of China, although it's more, more closely resembles Hulu, um, put up its numbers and jumped about 20% on its earnings results, as did Mercado Libre, uh, which is an e-commerce platform in Latin America. Of, uh, Latin America. So both of them have uh, big comparisons to companies uh, here in the United States, and both are putting up fantastic numbers. Folks that follow the full universe of stocks might know these names, but I think they still have kind of flown under the radar for a lot of investors. Uh, we are going to do our best to help raise their profile on today's show because I look at them. I mean, I own them both, and I think they're both uh, pretty excellent businesses uh, that still have a lot of growth ahead of them. We're going to go through the results and kind of talk about the opportunities that still lay out there. Why don't we talk about Mercado Libre first? Um, looking at this company. 2018 was kind of a rough year for the business, and so a lot of people were happy to see the positive results. Let's do a quick recap on where they were last year. Okay, Dylan. Well, last year, you know, they faced a number of challenges. You know, this is a, a smaller company uh, comparatively. I mean, we're not talking Amazon type numbers. Uh, Mercado Libre has a number of businesses in Latin America. At, similar to Amazon's. Uh, it has an e-commerce platform. It has a logistics business. It has uh, platforms available for sellers, similar to eBay. It has a payment solution, similar to PayPal. It has uh, merchant solutions, um, merchant credit. So, a, a number of different businesses. Now, last year, they ended up hitting several different issues at the same time, which really hit the stock hard. Uh, one of which was there was a trucker's strike in Brazil, which is their biggest market. So items were not getting delivered. So people held off on making purchases. There was also uh, an unexpected postal rate hike with the National Postal Service Correos. And then finally, um, you know, there were some issues with uh, an accounting change, um, which did not actually change any of the operational numbers, but what it did is it made the growth rate appear uh, much slower what, than what it was. People were used to seeing 50, 60, 70% growth rates, and all of a sudden it looked like the growth had slowed to, you know, 20 or 30%. So all of those things together gave investors pause and they went running for the sidelines. Yeah, I think this is the kind of company where 
you see the numbers and you almost always have to dig a little bit deeper to understand what's going on. Uh, we see the accounting changes more recently, but this is also a company that gets hit really hard with foreign exchange and currency fluctuations. We're going to touch on that in a second. Um, but let's talk about the results here. Super strong numbers coming in. Really great if you're looking uh, in uh, local currencies. Of course, we have to make the adjustment to the dollar because that's how they report their numbers. That's true. And it's worth noting that this really only happens on paper. Um, they will have occasion to you know, exchange their um, you know, Brazilian real denominated currency into dollars. But by and large, it stays in Brazil and it stays in the local currency. So it really doesn't have, <clears throat> excuse me, doesn't have any effect on the um, operating business. Uh, what it does do is that in order to translate those results into, um, to translate them into uh, a form that the SEC will accept, then they have to exchange those uh, foreign or foreign currencies into dollars. And when they do that, you know, it looks horrible. And just to give you an example, um, Mercado Libre's revenue was $428 million, and that was up only 20% year over year, which really doesn't seem that impressive. But then when you look at it in local currencies, their revenue was up 62% year over year. Yeah, and and so that's why company that is worth digging into the numbers on. Um, we saw that looking at the bottom line, they produced a net loss of about two point three billion. Again, that was something that was impacted by them denominating back in dollars uh, in local currency. Uh, they actually posted a profit, right? That's true. Um, their foreign exchange loss was three point, or I'm sorry, the the foreign exchange losses, which is what happens when you translate from local currencies into dollars was $3.9 million. Um, and if you look at their loss, which was only 2.3, they actually had like a $1.5 million gain for the quarter. So it's not like this is an insanely profitable business, but they are not losing money the way that you would think of uh, just looking at the way that they're stating things in dollars. Um, we talk about the currency swings. That's why it is so important with this company to look at some of the core business metrics. And, uh, you know, the currency stuff will mask what's going on, but you look at the core business metrics here, and that shows a company that is really firing on a lot of cylinders. Um, the confirmed registers users for them, which is kind of a strength of their overall marketplace, the Amazon part type of their business, uh, up to 267 million, up 26%. One thing that might give people reason for pause is a little bit of a slowdown in what we saw in items sold, only up 5% year over year. This is another one where we need to kind of double click into the numbers and see what's going on, though. That That's exactly right, Dylan. Um, there were a number of things. I spoke briefly earlier about the unexpected postal rate hike, and that was pretty severe, particularly on smaller items. The Brazilian National Postal Service raised rates something ridiculous on smaller items like 30%, um, which was kind of crazy. Uh, and Mercado Libre hadn't expected that. So going into the latter part of the year, they made several adjustments with their customers to address that. Um, they took a number of smaller items off of the website. Um, they limited the number of, of smaller items that they now carry. Uh, and additionally, what they did is instituted a flat rate um, that they charge to members, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, I think it's like 
$2.50 or something like that um, for these smaller items to defray the cost. Um, now what happened is, is because there are so many fewer items available on the site and because there's a flat rate shipping, that has discouraged people somewhat from buying these smaller items. Um, but that's to be expected. And I think what's going to happen is once we lap that change um, that we've seen, those numbers are going to you know, go back to their historical averages, which is um, you know, for items sold, they've typically been going up between, I want to say, 40 and 60% year over year for most quarters. Yeah, one other way to think about the way that that impacts the overall results is because they're removing some of the lower priced items, the average ticket is probably going to be going up on a lot of those orders, um, but there'll be being less orders overall. So, just a different way to think about the puts and takes that come with some of the decisions that management has made. Um, the big highlight for me in this report, though, Danny, and the thing that made me, frankly, pretty giddy as an investor in this company, was what's going on with payment transactions. This payment business is looking mighty fine. Um, that that's really one of the big stories behind this company. And if we go back just a little bit, just to provide investors with some history, um, when this company started, um, they were invested in by eBay, um, and eBay mentored them in their early years. And one of the things that they did under eBay's guidance was to basically start their own payment system. Uh, so similar to PayPal. Uh, Mercado Libre started a service that they call Mercado Pago. Uh, now, Mercado Pago uh, is uh, really well-liked and well-used in Latin America. Um, a little more background, Latin America is not like the United States in that, you know, here everybody has a checking account, everybody has a credit card. That's not the case in Latin America. In Latin America, what you see is a much more cash-based society. So they're not using as many credit cards. They're, many people don't have checking accounts. But Mercado Pago came along and people started adopting this. Uh, and so as a, for instance, in the most recent quarter, those payment transactions went up 72% year over year. And the reason for that is because that payment solution has gone off of their platform and is now being used by small businesses, similar to Square. It's being used by retailers, similar to PayPal. And so, you know, it's spreading to other uh, e-commerce websites because it's becoming one of the de facto premier um, payment methods in Latin America. And the wonder there is this goes from something that was kind of an elegant solution for them to create e-commerce transactions on their own platform and make that a little bit easier for people that are unbanked to now, you know, the opportunity for the off-platform transactions is even bigger than the on-platform. You know, that, that's kind of how management talks about it is the fact that you look outside of all the activity that happens just on Mercado Libre. Uh, it is dwarfed by everything else that happens in the economies there in terms of financial transactions and exchanges. So, big opportunity there. Um, total payment volume, $5.3 billion, up from $4.3 billion in the prior year quarter. We're going to see growth both from stuff that happens on Mercado Libre's properties and stuff that happens just in people transacting the way they would with Venmo or PayPal here in the States. True. And... Uh, Mercado Libre's CEO on the conference call even said um, that they expect the off 
platform transactions to overtake the on-platform transactions probably sometime in the next year. Um, and then the sky's the limit. You know, as long as they're uh, expanding into more uh, retail stores, they're expanding into small businesses, they're expanding onto other websites, really the sky's the limit for their payments business. And it's going to overtake every other business that they have at some point. Yeah, the market's big. And I think one of the reasons you have to love it as an investor, management touched on this in the call, is the opportunity is a little bit different when you look at the margins and the nuts and bolts of how these businesses work. You know, the marketplace for them is positive margin, but it's a very low margin. And the way the management kind of thinks about this is it's a distribution platform for everything that they do, kind of similar to how Amazon's marketplace creates this ubiquity that then gives them the ability to offer Prime, offer Prime Video, and just kind of become this service that people expect in their lives. Ditto for Mercado Libre. You look over at the payments and financing side, though, far higher margin, especially on the credit side. You know, and another thing that they talked about on the call, and you know, part of the reason that this is such an exciting opportunity is that the company has found that when people use more than one of its services, so if people go onto the website and they make an e-commerce purchase and then they use their shipping solution, Mercado Envios, or they use their payment solution, Mercado Pago, or they use um, you know, the consumer financing or the merchant financing, anytime they use more than one of those services, the customer satisfaction goes up the repeat business goes up, the lifetime value of the customer goes up, and then they start using more services. And then the more services they use, the happier the customers are, the happier the merchants are, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it becomes, uh, you know, just the more they use, the more they like it, the more they use, and it just continues that way. You know, Danny, in the tech world, we would call that a very sticky ecosystem. Don't you love it? <laughs> Don't you love it? Um, I want to call out too. You know, one of one of my favorite fools, um, Brian Feroldi, made this very good point on Twitter. You know, I think it's easy to look at the fact that the stock is up something like twenty five percent after earnings. You look back over the past couple of years, and it's been a multi bagger, and say it's gone on a heck of a run. You know, what can I really expect here? Am I buying in a little bit too late? Well, his breakdown here. Okay, it's incredible. You think about it. Mercado Libre is a twenty billion dollar company. PayPal is worth over 110 billion, eBay worth over 30 billion, Amazon worth over 800 billion. Mercado Libre is all of them bundled into one. So even though the stock's gone on a big run, in my opinion, plenty of room for it to continue to run. You know, and the the thing about Mercado Libre and it's something that we've dealt with over the years, so I'll just throw it out there is that anytime something happens in Latin America that causes you know, any kind of upheaval. If you have the truckers strike in Brazil, if you have the devaluation of currency, um, the currently currency exchange rate issues that we already talked about, um, political upheaval, uh, any of those things, investors get frightened away and the stock dips. And so people that can look past that, and David Gardner, the Motley Fool co-founder, likes to see say, dark clouds that I can see through, people that are that look at the longer term of this business and can just ride out those small dips um, are, are being 
rewarded well for their uh, patients. Yeah, I, I think that this plays on so many great trends that we like as investors, e-commerce, mobile payments, helping out people that are unbanked and making those transactions easier. Um, yes, there's the looming threat of an Amazon-like player coming in there, but you think about how much they're doing to build out their own ecosystem, that should insulate them a little bit, especially because it's such a fragmented area. There's so many different countries that they operate in in Latin America. And, you know, they have done a number of things to try to, you know, minimize the threat from Amazon. And while you can probably never do that, at least not completely, um, they've taken a number of steps. One of the things that they did was they instituted free shipping for a lot of their uh, merchants. And it's not something that even comes out of their pocket. They subsidize it somewhat, but a lot of that is in collaboration with the merchants. So they're not really paying for the entire shipping cost. Um, again, they're building out a logistics uh, operation. They have a number of warehouses now throughout Latin America, and they're building more. And these warehouses allow them to do what's called cross-docking operations, which is when a truck will come in from a merchant, it will drop off products. Those products will be loaded right onto another truck for delivery to customers. Um, so that's you know part of the logistics operation. They don't own any of these trucks. They don't own any of the shipping solutions. They do something similar to what Amazon did in the early years, which is they have agreements with many of the major shippers in the region. And because they provide bulk uh, and because they provide volume, they get better pricing. Um, so again, that's that's more of that, um, you know, the ecosystem of products and services that they have uh, is really going to serve investors well. All right, Danny, let's switch gears here and talk about another company. Uh, and this is one we own. This is one we've talked about before on the show. I actually had you on, I think, to do the breakdown of their prospectus right around the time that they were going public. Uh, IGE, what we would colloquially refer to as the Netflix of China. And that's exactly right. It, it is typically called the Netflix of China. And I try to you know, change people's uh, view of that as much as I can by saying it's more than that. Well, Netflix is primarily a subscription-based business, and that's all they do. Um, iQiyi operates in a little different uh, culture uh, in China. And historically, people in China were not used to paying for video. And that's something that uh, iQiyi started doing when they were still owned by uh, Chinese search giant Baidu a number of years ago, was they put up a paywall, they put in some premium content, and they began encouraging subscribers to move over to the subscription service. Now they still have both. They still have an ad-supported service similar to Hulu, and they have a subscription-based service similar to Netflix. So they actually do have the best of both worlds there. Thinking about where the business is going, membership services revenue up 76% in the most recent quarter, advertising revenue 9%. So it's kind of clear where the business is going. They're a little bit more reliant on the membership services side than the advertising for long-term growth. Um, something that is kind of interesting with them, too, makes them a little different than Netflix, is that they also have um, some other revenue segments out there. They do. In addition to uh, the subscription revenue that they get from members, and we've already mentioned the ad revenue, 
They also have two other segments that they use. Um, one of them is content distribution. Um, now, imagine if Netflix, with some of its original content, said, okay, you know, there are so many people that are never going to see this. Um, why don't we license this out for a period of time um, for them to show it on television, for it to be used by other streaming services? And so they get revenue from licensing out their content. Um, and then the last segment that they have is other. Um, their other segment includes um, merchandising and video games that are based on the company's original content. So similar to what Netflix is doing with, um, say, their hit series Stranger Things. You can go into stores and you can buy your favorite Stranger Things character on a coffee mug or on a t-shirt. Um, Aichi is doing that with its uh, hit programs and you can go buy t-shirts and coffee mugs or you can download a video game and play it on your phone that's based on characters from their television programs. Both those segments are smaller portions of the overall revenue pie for IGE, but both up over 100% year over year in the most recent results. You put it all together, this is a company that grew 55% year over year, uh, pretty incredible, both beating guidance and I think analyst expectations on Wall Street. Um, a big part of that is the fact that the member base for this company keeps going up. And, you know, if you look at, they are following the Netflix playbook. Netflix has four years, the Bears have said there's no way that Netflix is going to be able to do this, and yet they continue to do it. Um, and so what they have done several years ago, going back to about 2013, Netflix said, instead of licensing content from other people, we're going to produce our own content. Then it went from producing some of their own content now, or their content, now they actually produce and own some of their content. And that is a model that Aichi has embraced. And so they are quickly building out their own library of content. And some of these programs are massive, massive hits uh, in China. Uh, one that I refer to from last year is called Hot Blood Dance Crew, um, which is a reality program pits street dancers against each other in a competition. It became one of the most watched programs uh, in China. It had billions of views over the, I believe it was a 24, 26 week um, production. Billions of views became one of the um, highest uh, advertised programs in the country. And so, you know, they're, again, they're following the Netflix playbook on original content. They spent nearly $1 billion on content. Uh, and if you look back, they actually had only a billion dollars in revenue. So they're essentially spending every dollar that they have uh, on content and you know going into the hole a little bit on some of their other expenses. But they have uh, Baidu as a parent and they have huge backing. They've got a couple of billion dollars in the bank um, after having uh, recently acquired some debt. So they're really in a good place right now just to continue building out that library of content and following the Netflix playbook. 
And with 1.3 billion people in China, um, you know, they've really just scratched the surface of their potential subscriber base. Yeah, one thing that does kind of separate the Netflix model from IGE is, you know, Netflix um, to a lot of fanfare really dramatically expanded a couple of years ago and said, you know, we are targeting well over 100 countries and they did it pretty quickly and the content travels very well. Um, I think what'll be interesting to see with IGE is, okay, we have uh, something like 90 million members, give or take. Um, the total market about 1.3 in China, are they able to get outside of China with that member base? Because then the growth becomes even bigger as a runway. I, I'm not as sold on that, but I look within the country and I say, there are still a lot of prospective members out there for them to add. Absolutely. And I mean, if you look at their membership base right now, and I, I think their reported subscriber numbers grew to just over 87 million. To put that into perspective, I think Netflix's um, subscriber numbers just in the United States in the last quarter was somewhere in the neighborhood of 56 million. So they've already exceeded the number of uh, subscribers in their home country that Netflix has in the United States. And like again, there's 1.3 billion people in China. If you put that in perspective, in the United States, I want to say there's 325 million. Yeah, 340, um, something like that. So, you know, they have four times the potential customer base in China that Netflix has in the U.S. So they still have a lot further to go. You mentioned Baidu, and obviously it's super helpful to have a former parent company uh, that has pretty deep pockets and knows a thing or two about tech and consumers. I think this company has also been pretty brilliant in the strategic partnerships that they've gone out and inked to help them reach more members and make it easier to sign up for their services. That's true. Um, if you are a consumer in China, um, you have heard of JD.com, which is one of the uh, larger e-commerce platforms in China. You've heard of China Mobile, which is one of the most uh, ubiquitous uh, cell phone services, similar to you know, AT&T or T-Mobile in the United States. Um, you've probably heard of uh, C-Trip, which is the Chinese version of Booking.com, formerly Priceline. So these are well-known names to um, Chinese consumers. What iQiyi has done is they've gone out into the market and they have made, uh, they've partnered up with these customers and you can go out, for instance, with JD.com, they did a special deal where you can get a membership to both, the premium membership to JD.com and subscriber benefits from iQiyi all for one price. You pay the price for just one, and you get both services for the course of a year. And what they are banking on, and I think they're right to do so, is that once people get on the service and they get used to watching their favorite programs and they become enthralled with the content, they're going to continue that relationship. Um, same thing with, uh, with China Mobile. Same thing with... Um, JD.com, same thing with C-Trip, all of these companies, once they you know, sign up for these benefits, these companies are hoping that they will stick around. Um, 
I would argue that Aichi is in the best position to benefit from these relationships. Yeah, and and I think you look at them. You, it's it's kind of Netflix a couple of years ago, you know, in terms of where they are in their growth plan, and you see that in their content spend now, where um, it is a fraction of what Netflix's content spend currently is. You know, their revenue is also a fraction of what Netflix's current revenue is. <laughs> but um, the playbook has been so well executed by Netflix, um, and they almost kind of have a look into the future, you know, because Netflix is several years ahead of them in the sense that. Um, the model's so strong, the customer satisfaction seems so strong, and they similarly have these cultural event-type shows that they're able to release and really just kind of take over whatever the social conversation is. Um, I think they've done a great job executing and, uh, you know, happy to be a shareholder. I am as well. You know, one of one of the things that you have to keep in mind with both of these companies, with um, Mercado Libre and with Aichi, is that just because of the nature of their business, just because of where they are in their growth trajectory, um, there are still going to be wild swings in the stock price. Um, historically, and I'm, I've followed Mercado Libre for a decade, and one of the things that you see is that their price tends to fall you know, 25 to 40% regularly. And I believe that Aichi is on a similar trajectory. They're going to skyrocket and then their share price is going to fall 20, 30, 40 percent. Um, and, you know, the, the fair weather investors are going to get frightened out and then the stock is going to start to climb again. So you have to be prepared for volatility with both of these stocks. But that said, um, volatility is not risk. Risk is, uh, you know, whether or not the stock's going to go to zero. I don't think either one of these companies has that to worry about, not with the the business models that they have in place. Um, but again, there, there's going to be some volatility and that's something you just have to, you know, steal yourself for and on bad days, look away from your computer screen and go do something else. <laughs> yeah, we were slacking, setting up some show notes before we stepped into the studio today. And you said, um, Mercado is kind of one of those companies, you buy it and you just put it on the shelf. And, and you kind of understand right. there are going to be those swings here and there. But um, I think you could say something similar about IGE. Obviously, a little bit earlier, and you want to take smaller bites with a company that is still kind of building up. But with both these companies, a lot of volatility ahead, but they play on really, really great mega trends that we've seen be successful for other businesses. No reason to think they can't execute as well. I, I think that's exactly the case. And that's why I'm, I'm happy to be uh, you know, a... a investor in both of these companies and expect that you know we'll be back talking about them for many years to come. <laughs> I would be thrilled if that happened. Danny, thanks for hopping on today's show. I'm glad to be here and uh, you know take a pilgrimage out to San Diego sometime. <laughs> we'll have to make that happen. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say hey, you can shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out videos from this podcast over on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Danny Venna, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!